You have installed 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 3, Would You Like to Play a Game? Hey, this is Remy. Uh, our title this time comes from the flavor text on Victor 1.0, the Haas Bioroid Ice, which says, My name is Victor. Nice to meet you. Would you like to play a game? Victor is a good selection because not only is it a part of the new Red Herrings segment that will come later on this episode, but it's also tied into the theme of both last week's episode and this week, which is ice and icebreakers. And whereas last week we focused on it from the runner perspective, this time we'll be focusing on ice from the corporation perspective. So our first several segments are going to be focusing on that, ice placement, types of ice. We're going to focus it on one specific piece of ice. Uh, Before we move on into the a reboot project specific information in the second half of the episode. Anonymous tip The Corporation and Ice. We have a few different points to mention here about the ice when it comes to the corpse. And the first point is the same first point I made last week when about the runner. Not all ice stops runs. Again, when you're new to the game, I think it's fairly common to think that I've got this piece of ice down, so now you can't get into my server. And so if you put down a piece of ice that does not have an end-of-the-run subroutine, and then you start advancing an agenda behind it, well... It is not safe from being stolen. So that's a basic key concept and feeds nicely into the second point I'd like to make. But there basically, broadly, are two types of ice. End-the-run ice and ice that is not end-the-run. Well, so a basic question would be, what's the point of running ice if it doesn't end the run, right? If your whole point is to keep the runner out, why would you ever use something that can't keep the runner out? Well, there are multiple reasons, naturally. One basic reason is to provide an early surprise. If they run into a piece of ice that doesn't have an end the run subroutine, but does perhaps have a damage subroutine, and they don't have the breaker for it or don't have enough money for it, well, that's pretty valuable. Meanwhile, later in the game, there's an advantage with bigger ice. It just costs the runner a lot to continually run through it. So it's what we would call taxing on the runner. A follow-up point would be, what's the point of an ice with end-the-run subroutine like wall of static, for example, once the runner has a fractor. I mean, for one thing, of course, you have program destruction. 
that can reset the game to a state and make it so the runner doesn't have a fracture again. But again, let's just assume, uh, let's, uh, let's assume this situation. The runner is criminal. Gabe, you have a wall of static on HQ. Gabe has a corroder installed. So what's the point? Should you just overwrite that wall of static? Well, maybe, but look at it from the perspective of the cost. It costs you three to res wall of static. You only have to pay that once. It costs Gabe two to install corroder. Well, he should only have to pay that once. But now, every time he wants to run through that ice, he has to pay two with corroder to break it. So, every single time he makes a run on HQ, there's a tax, basically, of two credits to get through that ice. And two credits maybe doesn't sound like a lot. We've mentioned more than once that one credit difference can make a difference, so two isn't nothing. In fact, two, that's Gabe's entire bonus. Running through HQ, getting two credits. So, just putting a wall of static on HQ negates the bonus for Gabe on running there. So, that's an example of the sort of exchange to notice. How much did it cost me, but how much is it going to cost the runner every time they have to go through it? A third point to keep in mind about ice, can I afford to res the ice I have? There is a bit of mathiness in this game, especially when you've got these multiple costs and you have, you're going to have to pay them, but you haven't paid them yet. Sometimes you might be sitting on 10 or 15 credits, but you have several pieces of unresed ice. So don't fool yourself with the size of your credit pool, like, oh, look at all this money I have, because it can go away pretty quickly once you start resing that ice. And if you res it all and no longer can protect your agenda, see, that's the fourth point. Do I always need to res the ice when the runner runs into it? Well, some situations are obvious. Let's say you have an agenda in a remote server. You're going to score it next turn. There's a barrier in front of it. It's unresed. The runner runs on it, has no fracture. You have plenty of money. Well, obviously, you res the barrier there because the runner can't get through. You're going to score this agenda next turn. Clearly, you would res the ice. But sometimes, the runner is just seeking information. Maybe you don't want to give them that information. Sometimes resing the ice on, let's say, R&D is going to make you too poor to do what you want on your next turn. So maybe you don't res the ice. You roll the dice and just hope they don't find an agenda. So ice resing is not always automatic. And the fifth point is just kind of like a classic turn one for the corporation. And it's known as Ice Ice Baby. Maybe you've heard of that song. Let me sing a little bit of it for you. No, no, I'm not going to do that. And it's just that's this simple. A great first turn, turn for a corp is to put an ice on HQ, put an ice on R&D, and then play a money card. That's the baby part. So if you can put out two ice that are relatively inexpensive and play a hedge fund, that's a pretty decent corp first turn.
In our Data Sucker segment, we're going to compare ice between the factions. Now, last week when we talked about icebreakers for the runner side, we looked at each faction and then the type of icebreaker within each faction. That's less of a useful type of comparison with ice. Though broadly, you'd like to see one each of barrier, code gate, and sentry in each faction. HB has that. They also have, they have two sentries. Jinteki has that. They have two code gates. But NBN doesn't. No barrier there. They have two sentries. And Wayland doesn't either. They have no code gates, though they have two sentries and two barriers. So that's interesting, right? You're, you're more like, less likely to see a barrier in NBN. It's going to have to be splashed or it's going to have to be wall of static. You're less likely to see code gates in Wayland. But you notice that everybody's got sentries, and mo- many of them have two. And so that hints at something else about the card pool, which is just that sentries are more common. Of the 18 ice types in the, the core set that are either barrier, code gate, or sentry, five are barriers, five are code gates, eight are sentries. So that's a rate of one to one to 1.6. You're 60% more likely to have a sentry. Now, if you look at the reboot card pool overall, uh, there are a total of, doing the math, 132 different kinds of ice, and it's 34 barriers, 42 code gates, and 56 sentries, which is actually pretty similar to the corset composition. Five barriers, to six code gates instead of five, to eight sentries. So that's your common rule of thumb. Sentries are more of a concern. As an aside, in the null signal games version, their current pool has 36 barriers, 48 code gates, only 41 sentries. So in the NSG version, there are actually more code gates. For every six barriers, you're going to see seven sentries and eight code gates. So the the proportions are a little bit off there. Anyway, this is not a null signal podcast. But I think it's interesting because, generally speaking, cost-wise, barriers are the cheapest to break because the barrier breakers are the most efficient, fractors. Code gates are next cheapest, and sentries tend to be the most expensive to break, and yet the sentry is the most common kind of ice. But some things we can analyze about the factions apart from just what type of ice they are, the HB ice are, tend to be bioroid, which means you can click through them. You can spend a click to break any subroutine on them. They also have brain damage. That's the specialty. Jinteki is better at code gates, I guess. I mean, they have two code gates, although Cell Portal is not really a great card. And their specialty is net damage. Against NBN, Every one of their eyes has an on-encounter effect. They're also focusing on tracers, which is logical with the identity being recurring credits for traces, and tags. Wayland, meanwhile, while having a mix of effects, has advanceable ice. They can make it stronger, and their barriers tend to be a little better. Now, what are some things we should be concerned about when running into the ice from different factions? Well, probably, to me, the biggest concern 
not damage, even brain damage. I think program destruction is probably the biggest concern. HB has two that will destroy programs. Ichi 1.0 has two subroutines on it. It's a sentry with a strength of four. Roto Turret also has one. It's a sentry with a strength of one. Wayland, meanwhile, has the impressive Archer, which also has two destroy a program subroutines. It's a sentry with a strength of six. Meanwhile, Jinteki and NBN do not have any program destruction. These are sorts of details it's kind of important to keep in mind, depending on who you're running against. I think damage is a secondary concern. Uh, HB, again, has Ichi that has a potential to do brain damage, although its subroutine only has a trace one, so it's a slight potential. Victor, the code gate, also has a brain damage subroutine. He's a strength four. And Heimdall, the barrier, even offers a chance at brain damage. It's a strength six. So in HB, each of the types could cause you damage. The same is true of Jinteki. With Chum, that makes the next piece of ice yield damage. Chum's a code gate, strength four. Neural Katana, strength three, is a sentry that has one net damage subroutine. And Wall of Thorns, again, the barrier at strength five, also has a subroutine. And then there's also data mine, which will do damage. Meanwhile, NBN and Wayland, they don't have any ice in faction that will do damage. What about tags? That's another concern. Once again, we come back to Ichi. Ichi's a pretty good ice. In HB, that's that trace, that trace one, not only can cause brain damage, but also give you a tag. Uh, NBN has Data Raven which on encounter can give you a tag, so that's pretty strong, or in the run, and then also has a trace three to let them tag you whenever they want, which is pretty dangerous. Matrix Analyzer also has a trace four to give you a tag. It's a three-strength sentry. Data Raven's a four-strength sentry. Wayland has Shadow that has a trace three subroutine on its one-strength sentry, and then even the neutral cards come up with Hunter, a five-strength sentry that provides a trace three for a tag. Meanwhile, Jinteki, not interested in tagging you. So there are some varieties for, uh, you know, each faction is really looking to do something slightly different with the ice that they have in-house. And of course, they can splash in uh, cards from other factions, and that's something to watch out for. But you're going to tend to see ice primarily from infection, I would say. Uh, and the run is the other main type of subroutine, and, and that's not really a concern. It's just something you have to deal with. The one piece of ice that is an outlier that I think is worth mentioning is Datamine. And no, I don't know why I pronounce it Datamine, but Data Raven. That's just the way my head works. Datamine, the Jinteki Codegate? No. Sentry? No. Barrier, no, it is not any of those things, so it can only be broken with an AI icebreaker. In the core set, that means Crypsis or Worm, and both of them are a little tricky to use. Although, even if you don't have one of those, it's just a couple net damage, and it does blow itself up afterwards. It can also be bypassed with Inside Job.
sure gamble for this week, staying on the topic of ice, is Tollbooth. This is an NBN code gate with a strength of 5, but its res cost is 8. It has an on-encounter ability that the runner has to pay 3 credits if they encounter the ice, and a single end-the-run subroutine. It is really good. It's an ice that is probably worth putting in your deck, even if you're not NBN. I just want to share a couple of comments that have been made from the community that emphasize this point and uh, discuss it a little bit. First, a shorter comment from Alex Rockwell, username Alex Frog, from Board Game Geek. And this goes back to when the corset was new. He says, the best ice in the game. It never gets cheap to break through. And a good surprise hit as well. Yes, Archer is more damaging, but at a big cost. The only icebreaker that is any good against it is Femme Fatale, which costs nine. And that's only good against one toll booth that they have already seen. Unquote. Now here's a longer comment from Simon Moon on stimhack.com. This is from January of 2018, so after the revised core set was released, but before the game was discontinued. Quote, Tollbooth is probably the biggest piece of ice that has been consistently included in tournament-winning decks throughout Netrunner. Due to the nature of the encounter ability, there is almost no way to get around paying a decent chunk of money every time you run through it. Gordian Blade breaks for seven credits. Even the methods of destroying Tollbooth, Parasite, and Data Sucker usually require a large investment of resources by the runner who has to encounter Tollbooth twice, once to force the res and the second time to destroy it with Parasite. Even Femme, which allows you to bypass the Tollbooth for one credit, is a nine-cost runner card that represents a large investment. The biggest weakness of Tollbooth is that 8 credits is a huge resource investment, and the runner only has to pay 3 credits when it is rezzed. However, Tollbooth has consistently been the go-to ice for decks that want the ability to create a server which is extremely taxing. A lot of this has to do with the encounter ability, having much more limited options for dealing with it, like Femme or Inside Job, meaning the best ways to deal with it generally still involve paying at least three credits a couple of times. So that's a perspective from uh, later, much later in the run of the game. So it's, I'm pretty confident that Tollbooth is a pretty good ice. Uh, There is another longer article about Tollbooth that I found, again, going back to the corset days on Card Game DB, which is where the first notable deck builder for Netrunner appeared before Netrunner DB. Uh, it's too long to really get into. It has a lot of interesting tips and comments about dealing with it. I'll link to all three of these articles in the show notes. Well, one final segment on ice in particular is here in the toolbox, where we'll just briefly answer the question of How much ice should you put in a deck? Well, taking a look at the basic corset decks, which, uh, again, you can go to the Retechie. Actually, have I ever mentioned that? 
I'm not sure I have mentioned that yet. I'll, I'll get to that, the retechy version of Netrunner DB. But the basic core set decks, Haas Bioroid has 17 eyes, NBN has 17, Wayland has 18, and Jinteki has 20. I've been reading through lots of articles and comments from, you know, back when the game was first released. And over and over, I see people saying that you really need to have plenty of ice, 18 to 20 ice in a deck. Some decks might even want more. I saw a Haas Bioroid deck that really wanted that accelerated beta test to land, so it had 23 ice in it. But meanwhile, Advice from later years suggests that going over more than 16 or 17, like those are an absolute max, and to have 20 in a deck is just crazy. Now, what I don't know is whether that's based on just newer cards being available, more options being available, non-ice options that people want to run, or whether there's simply more experience from playing the game and people have realized, A, you don't need that much ice. I don't know which that is. But if you have, let's say, 18 ice, that's a nice round number, you probably want to mix the types of ice that you have, right? Maybe have an even mix of six barriers and six code gates or, and six sentries, or maybe reflect the distribution of the ice in the core set and have five barriers and five code gates and eight sentries. That would be 18. That's very similar to what HB's ice distribution is. They have just seven centuries, so otherwise it's five of the others. And meanwhile, of course, NBN is barrier light, no barriers in faction. Wayland is code gate light, no code gates in faction. But it's Jinteki that has some of each and the trap, data mine, that's running 20, at least in the core set. Again, those decks, those basic decks are not, ne decks are not necessarily like the best things to be playing with. But not only do we want to mix types, because why would you want to have only barriers? Right? Here's where we get away from the idea of all and the run. If you have only barriers, one code breaker is all the runner needs to get into any server. See, that's why we want to have a mix of different types. But we also want to have a mix of different costs, like res costs. Because if everything in your deck is just Tollbooth and Archer, and Wall of Thorns, and Heimdall, that's really expensive. What are you going to res at the beginning of the game? So the other runner will run all over the top of you at the beginning of the game. You may not ever get enough money to res that ice. But then again, if it's all really cheap, like Hunter, and Ice Wall, and other really inexpensive stuff, it's going to be no problem for the runner, once they get into the late part of the game, to just blow right through all of your ice. So a mix. Some stuff that'll be good at the beginning, some stuff that'll be better toward the end. Here we'll debut a new segment called The Maker's Eye, where we'll focus particularly on the artwork in Android Netrunner. A lot of time and attention was devoted by Fantasy Flight Games to presenting a really I think, in many cases, a very beautiful and diverse amount of art in the game. Now, it's not all fantastic. I think the illustration for Stimhack is kind of meh. But there are some things that are really nice. And the first 
person I'd like to highlight in the maker's eye is the artist Liga Smilskana. She's an artist from Latvia who has two core set cards, Battering Ram and Enigma, and many more to come. Uh, in the reboot card pool, there are 30 cards that Liga uh, illustrates. And if you include all the Fantasy Flight cards and all the Null Signal cards, there are 76 different cards that she has been used. And her art style is is really interesting. She's a digital artist, and it's it's very colorful. It's I think it's I think it's really beautiful. I, I'm not an artist. I don't have a lot of other arty terms to throw around, but but it's really I don't. It's really eye catching. I think I feel like it's the kind of artwork that would serve well as like desktop wallpaper or even a poster. Now you can take a look at the work that she has done for Netrunner, not all of it, but some of it, and is still doing. I'll include links to her ArtStation page and her Instagram in the show notes. But I also came across a really interesting conversation that she had with Adam S. Doyle, who is someone who has done other art. He did the artwork for Medium in the core set, and he's done several other pieces as well. But uh, a nice conversation between the two of them. It's like a 40-minute video. It's mainly just audio on YouTube. I'll also include that in the show notes. Uh, Most of the work that you'll see for Liga is, if I can call her that, first name basis, Ms. Smishkane, is uh, for ICE and programs. Like her artwork seems to be perfectly suited to the virtual world, to uh, being on the network. Uh, rather than the uh, concrete stuff that we'll see actual drawings of people and whatnot. Highly recommended. Hi, I'm Jack Whalen. You may remember me from such consortiums as the Wayland Consortium and from such space elevators as the Beanstalk. Jack's Beanstalk. I'm Jack. That's me. Here at the Wayland Consortium, we build stuff and sometimes blow stuff up, but that's only so we can build more stuff. Wayland Consortium is a builder of nations. We are building a better world and you can trust us because we built it. Here in the Lemuria Codecracker segment this week, we're going to take a look at the second half of the core set corp cards that have been adjusted. Uh, 61 corp cards altogether are present in the core set. The reboot project made modifications to 38 of them. Of these 38 adjustments, only seven were nerfs, but we're going to hit on four of those today as we cover NBN, Wayland, and the neutral cards. First, in NBN, the one non-number adjustment to a card in the core set is AstroScript Pilot Program. The original text in the September 2012 release of Android Netrunner was this. Place one agenda counter on AstroScript Pilot Program when you score it. Hosted agenda counter. Place one advancement token 
on a card that can be advanced. The fact that came along in July of 2016 limited this to just one card per deck. The tactic that has been taken by the Reboot Project is to change the paid ability to this. Hosted Agenda Counter. Place one advancement token on a card that can be advanced. That was not installed this turn. That's the key. That's the text change to AstroScript. AstroScript Pilot Program is a two-for-three agenda. It's two agenda points for three advancements. Breaking News is a one-for-two agenda, which grants temporary tags to the runner. The number of tags has been reduced from two to one. And San San City Grid, an upgrade that lowers the advancement requirement for an agenda, has, has its trash cost reduced from five to four. The other nerf is in Wayland, Scorched Earth, the operation that does four meat damage to a runner if they are tagged, has its influence increased from four to five. So that's two five influence cards in the core set in the reboot project between Scorched Earth and Biotic Labor. But there are many more buffs. Four in NBN, the identity making news, which gives two recurring credits for traces, has its influence raised from 15 to 17. Ghost Branch, an advanceable ambush that gives tags, has its trash cost increased from zero to three. Matrix Analyzer, the sentry that enables advancement on other cards is also a tracer, has that trace strength increased from two to four. And Red Herrings, the upgrade that makes an additional cost to steal an agenda, has had its trash cost increased from 1 to 4. Wayland has six uh, buffs for its list. Posted Bounty, and a, a 1 for 2 agenda, except it's not anymore. Now it's a 2 for 3 agenda. I guess it used to be 1 for 3. Is that right? 1 for 3? One for, anyway, it's 2 Agenda points for three advancements. You can forfeit it to give the runner a tag and take a bad publicity. So the agenda points were increased from one to two. Security subcontract, an asset that trashes ice, lets you gain money, lets you gain six credits instead of four. Aggressive negotiation, an operation that lets you search for cards after you score an agenda, lets you search for two instead of one. Hadrian's Wall, an advanceable barrier, has its res cost reduced from 10 to 7. Shadow, the advanceable sentry that also has a tracer, its res cost is reduced from 3 to 2. And Research Station, the upgrade that gives you plus 2 to hand size, has its trash cost increased from 3 to 6. And we also have three buffs to neutral cards. Priority Requisition, a three agenda point agenda for five advancements, lets you res ice after scoring it. Now you can res two at no cost instead of just one. Melange Mining Corp, an asset that lets you spend your entire turn clicking to gain seven credits, 
as its trash cost increased from one to two. And Hunter, Hunter, a sentry that's a tracer, has its strength increased from four to five. Matrix Analyzer gives me a chance to make some observations about things that have changed. I mean, AstroScript is the one that jumps out the most. The uh, Astro Train is what it used to be called, is that you would just score one right after the other, because with that agenda counter, you could literally score AstroScript Pilot Program one turn, and then the next turn, install, advance, advance, take the advancement token from the first AstroScript and score that next one a two-pointer for just two advancements. And now you have another counter. So now you can do it again. And so it just makes for a very fast, hard-to-counter, making it so that you can't use that token on a card that was installed this turn really slows that down. I really like the change to priority requisition as well. That makes that makes that agenda feel really strong. It was already decent, but uh, once more three-pointers start showing up, and especially once enough two-pointers show up that you don't want to run a three-pointer because it's dangerous to have a three-pointer in your deck that the runner can just steal, and boom, they've got three points out of their seven. So making this a much more valuable resing two pieces of expensive ice, like, for example, your Hadrian's Wall, is really great for resing Archer without having to get rid of an agenda first, uh, makes that really useful. And Red Herrings, I was playing a game uh, just at the last game night, last 2.1 game night, and wow, that was kind of a pain to deal with that because it's already five extra credits to steal an agenda in a server with Red Herrings. And then if you want to also trash it, that's four more. There's a big difference between having to spend six and having to spend nine. So it's very effective. I think that makes that a pretty good upgrade. One question I have, but I don't quite understand, I don't think, is the breaking news adjustment, reducing it from two tags to one. I think, generally speaking, since the tags go away at the end of the turn anyway, it doesn't really matter how many tags the runner has. If they have at least one tag, you can do bad stuff to them. So if I'm right, the only benefit to reducing it from two to one is the combo that you can do with the card that comes much later, exchange of information, an agenda that lets you basically score something and then switch it with the runner for one they already have. So you can switch breaking news over and then the tags don't go away. So in that situation, the runner's only saddled with one extra tag rather than two. Still, I think that's a pretty slight nerf as these things go. Let me also include in here the comments that Abram, uh, the big boy, had to make about the three cards that I discussed last time that were nerfed. Accelerated beta test comes first. It's the agenda that lets you install ice for free. You're only looking at two instead of three. His comment, this reduces the variance of ABT, accelerated beta test, making outcomes where multiple ice or multiple agendas are flipped much less common. As for the identity, engineering the future, influence reduced, reduced from 15 to 12, 
His comment, ETF is probably the best corp ID in the game and should be statted appropriately. At 12 influence, it still has access to Jackson and win condition cards if it wants them, but then cannot afford much else. So Jackson is a reference to Jackson Howard, a, an asset that comes along a little bit later to pull agendas back out of the archives. Very useful. But I think just in the core set, obviously they were playing very conservatively. They kept everything the same, right? All of the decks in the core set are 45 minimum, 15 influence. But yes, reduced influence is a good thing. And biotic labor, again, with its influence increased from four to five, biotic labor, an operation that basically gives you a free click. The big boys comment, like Scorched Earth, biotic labor is a signature card that should only rarely be seen out of faction. At five influence, it is still splashable as a single copy, but not really as two or three. So thanks again. Uh, for that behind-the-scenes info on changes made to the cards by the Reboot Project. Red Herrings is my opportunity to say, oops, sorry about that. I made a couple of errors last week when talking about icebreakers. For example, somehow uh, in my head, I was looking at Victor 1.0 and paying attention to his res cost and not his strength. So I was talking about how Yogg gets through Victor for zero. But no, because Victor's strength is actually four, Yogg's is three, so Yogg can't get through without help. So this is an interesting way. I just, I just really like the, the push and pull where you have, um, you raise the cost on one piece of ice, and in that, in so doing, you kind of reduce the utility of an icebreaker. So it's, it was actually Victor's buff, sort of as a light, a slight additional nerf to Yogg. And then I got my math completely wrong on how much it costs Pipeline to break Archer. It's not 14 credits, it's only 10. But 10 is still a lot. Heading over to the research station this time around, we've already looked at retechie.net, which is where you can go to play Reboot Project games online. We've already gone to the Discord for the Reboot Project, which is very, very useful in finding games to play. But the third thing I'd like to highlight that's retechie-focused is the Retechie DB. So it's nrdb retechie.fun. And this is basically a reskinning or an alteration of the classic deck builder Netrunner DB, which supplanted Card Game DB, I referred to this earlier in the episode, as really the premier place to go and build decks. And that's what Retechie DB is good for, building decks. Uh, you know, then you have to, if you want to get it into uh, Retechie to play the game, you have to you know, export it. You can export it as a jinteki.net file. It just turns it into a text file. You copy, you paste. But I just find building decks and looking up cards and navigating just way easier on Netrunner DB and its equivalent here, Reteki DB. So I definitely recommend that. I have posted 
already all of the basic decks for each faction. So you can go on there and just look up basic core shaper deck, for example. And that's the deck that came in the box. I think there is a slight change I made maybe with Wayland because posted bounty is worth more points now. But otherwise, those are exactly the same as they would have been coming out of the original box. And if I have any additional deck lists that are that I that I've come across that I think are useful to share, I will definitely do that on there. Although I didn't put up the one from last week when I covered the second place finisher. Huh. Uh, eh, mm, I think I won't do that. So Riteki DB, that's the third sort of leg of the tripod for for really getting into using the Netrunner, Netrunner Reboot project online. Our penultimate segment this week is another new one, Special Order, where I'm going to take an opportunity to uh, prov- return feedback. If anybody who sends me an email or comments on the post on Reddit that I make or comments to me directly in Discord or however you get a hold of me, um, I'll bring it on here to the show. So from last week's episode, I got a comment from, not sure how to pronounce this, it's spelled Zeroth, zero T-H. And then capital M X M A. So I don't know. You have to tell me how to pronounce that. His co- his comment, their comment is this: I'm surprised you chose Magnum Opus as your sure gamble here. Classically, this is a correct take, but check out the reboot changes to Armitage Code Busting. It feels so much better to play and makes Mopus look like much more of a liability. Unquote. Yeah. So that's an, an interesting comment. It's true. I wasn't factoring that in as well. Uh, pay me like I should have, because now Armitage code busting is is 16 credits instead of 12 like it used to be. And it was pretty good anyway. In fact, to show you how good it was, let me share these comments from Netrunner DB because it's possible there to comment on individual cards. Now, this is the original Netrunner DB I'm referring to, not the Retechie site, about Armitage versus Magnum Opus. So Shannon L., in May of 2015, said this. The thing is, this is one of those cards I always consider for a runner deck, this is Armitage, when running Opus. The difference is in card slots, of course, but in a deck where Opus would be good econ, Armitage may be better. How often do you use Opus? Did losing the four creds different in price mess up your setup? Is 2MU a significant cost? Consider that three Armitage are never dead draws in a deck like three opus. Lord Randomness in January of 2016 said, remember too that Mopus only breaks even with this after eight clicks and beats it after nine. This is because it costs four more creds. Plus, depending on how much MU is worth to you, yeah, if you're not in it for the long haul, Armitage is generally going to be superior. Worth pointing out, now you need 11 clicks to beat Armitage with Magnum Opus because it's more credits on Armitage. And a third comment from Valkyries Gaming in November of 2020. With Aesops, you essentially can click it five times for 10 credits and then sell it next turn for three, gaining an extra credit and a click. Therefore, it's actually 12 credits for five clicks, although now that's 16 credits for seven clicks overall. 
which is slightly better than clicking for two credits with something like Magnum Opus. And so just to underline the math on that last comment, Armitage is one credit to install. You need eight clicks to gain 16 credits. And so you net 15 credits. Whereas Magnum Opus is five credits to install. And then to get to that same place where you net 15 credits, you have to spend 10 clicks to click it 10 times to gain 20. So basically you have to click it two more times and you would have already clicked Armitage to be able to gain more. But then again, I had a game last week where I gained, according to the little box that popped up at the end of the game there on Riteki, I gained 89 credits over the course of the game. Now, I don't know whether it included the credits I used off a of toolbox, but I installed Magnum Opus Turn 1, and I clicked it a lot. It was a long game. I trashed multiple red herrings in that game. So maybe it's really only a sure gamble if you can get it out early or if you're desperate late. I don't know. But thank you for the comment from Zeroth Mixma, M by M-A. Now, if you would like to reach out to me and tell me something that I could think about differently, I'd be more than happy to take that into consideration. You can send me an email to anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. Contact me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or uh, Reddit. My username is Auberman, A-W-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. My website, which will redirect to the Reboot Project, is Netrunner2.1, point there is spelled out, dot com. And you can go online to play at reteki.fun. If I'm running a game group, a 2.1 focused group that's starting with just the core set, and if you'd like to play games, come to the Discord server. We have our own channel, and whenever, whatever the set time that we're going to have to play that game, that's where you'll be notified. And I'm also trying to work on ways to get those that are more EU friendly time as well. The music for the episode is provided by Alexi Action, and many of the cards discussed in this week's episode will be linked in the show notes, or at least links to pages of bunches of cards one way or the other. Thanks for listening. The AstroScript pilot program for this week will be Noise and Wayland. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Noise. Hacker extraordinaire. I guess I'm just the classic example of the man who had every advantage going tragically wrong. Riley grinned a cocksure, infuriating grin that made him look ten years younger on his already young-looking face. You did, said Brady, flicking through the file that hung in the air between them. G. Riley says here you're a G-mod from birth. Mommy and Daddy must have loved you very much to tinker with your brain like that. Oh, sure, said Riley. They loved me so much they planned everything out. You know, I was born on Heinlein, but I went to school downstock. Mommy and Daddy lived out on the moon. 
But there I was, living in an arcology in New Angeles. I could look out the window at night and wave at my mom and dad. Don't sell me that line of bull. It's all there in the file, detective. Riley flicked one long-fingered hand at the shimmering vert display. All planned out. Internship with Jinteki's AI research division. Management position by 25, VP by 30. You were not a Jinteki VP. Oh, no. Can you imagine? <laughs> he laughed, a short, sharp bark of a laugh. That company would never survive me. And then the grin again. Still might not. So, you had every advantage a boy could dream of, sneered Brady, and yet here you are. Riley shrugged, doing his best to look innocent. The cuffs spoiled both effects. So why the life of crime, Riley? Why the life of crime? Riley wrapped his mouth and lips around each word, tasting them, weighing the ideas contained within. Why not? Brady sneered, dropping his pad to the cold steel of the table. I know why. You get plenty rich off these little capers. There's what you know and what you think you know, detective. And there's two things you should know before we go any further. Yeah? The first thing is that arresting me over and over does not mean that I'm a criminal. Not until you can find a charge that'll stick. You're no good, Riley. The techs are going to find that stolen data on one of your data cores somewhere. You won't be a top-flight runner anymore. They're going to pull the cyberware out of your head. And if you so much as touch a pad, they'll break your fingers. You'll just be G. Riley. Nobody. That's the other thing, detective. He stood, resting his hands on the table. All the flippant gestures, all the mocking smiles were gone. His eyes blazed like foxfire. My name is Noise. Brady held his gaze until his pad chirped. He frowned and glanced down at it. The device tracked his eyeline and the vert display bloomed to life. Orders. So said Noise. I guess I'll be going now? He offered his cuffs and grinned. Brady scowled. Wayland Consortium. Moving Upwards. Aside from its dramatic and public association with the New Angeles Space Elevator, better known as Jack's Beanstalk, or simply The Beanstalk, after designer Jack Wayland, the extent of the Wayland Consortium's holdings is little known among the general population. This shadowy organization owns or invests in other corporations, leveraging the enormous assets granted them by the beanstalk to buy and sell smaller megacorps 
at an alarming rate. For the past several decades, the Wayland Consortium's obvious specialty has been construction, a legacy of its involvement in the Space Elevator Project. Many of its subsidiaries are construction companies, often on a local level, or suppliers for construction companies. By some estimates, half the arcologies in New Angeles were built by a Wayland Consortium-controlled company. And cunning accounting and business practices ensure that even when the client companies fold, the consortium somehow comes out ahead. Part of the secret of the Wayland Consortium's success lies in its ability to secure government contracts and lobby for favorable legislation, especially in the United States and China. It is often a war profiteer, securing lucrative reconstruction bids in the Mediterranean, United Korea, and the Sub-Saharan League nations. In the wake of the Lunar War, Wayland snatched up almost 70% of the orbital reconstruction contracts on Earth and nearly all of the Heinlein contracts. Unfortunately for Wayland, its apparent magic with local governments does not appear to extend to the Martian separatists, who consider the Wayland Consortium a corporate extension of Earth's hegemony. Still, Wayland remains confident that the bright future of the human race is in outer space. The consortium is a major source of funding for space exploration and continues to acquire aerospace and orbital construction companies. Some suggest that the Wayland Consortium seeks a monopoly in outer space, that it wants to control all human habitation outside Earth's atmosphere. Many of these alarmists are Martians, who distrust the Wayland Consortium on principle. Given the Wayland Consortium's proclivity for operating in war-torn regions, it should be no surprise the corporation is comfortable playing hardball. While little has been proven, some mysterious deaths are blamed on elements within the consortium. Wayland favors a brute-force approach to most problems, using its vast resources to get their way. <laughs>